Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I am the Lady Cordelia. Are you though? Are you sure that you're not Katie? <laughs> Could you call me Penelope? <laughs> is that your name? No, my name is Brenna. With an A. <laughs> Brenna with no D. That's my name. <laughs> but I always call you Brenda. <laughs> Secret fact, listeners, I actually (laughs) did call Brenna, Brenda, for quite a long time. Like a decade. For like a decade. (laughs) But only as a funny rejoinder. It was not serious. At my last job, I never received a single piece of paperwork from HR or from any senior administrator that spelled my name correctly. And it was always different every time. And then when I got to this job... Everybody spells my name correctly, and it's weird. It's like, oh, how strange. Like, people take the time to recognize that I am a human being and act accordingly. It's very nice. It's very nice. That boggles my (laughs) mind. I can understand somebody, you know, throwing off an email really quickly and not quite paying attention. But, like, HR documents? Seriously, like, and it's like, uh, so listeners know my name is Brenna Clark Gray. Brenna, not Brenda. Clark with an E, Gray with an A. And yet somehow like this combination of words is impossible for people to spell correctly, at least at my last gig. It's funny because I also never correct people because when your name is Brenna, your life is just constantly people saying Brenda, Brianne, Brenna. It's just not a particularly common name. People call you by different versions of it. I would never correct like a barista or like a receptionist at the doctor's office. Like Nobody I'm not going to have, like, a continued relationship with. Am I going to have a thing about it? It's not worth it. (laughs) But, yeah, no, in my working life, it would be nice. (laughs) So what you're saying is you lack the gumption that Anne... Oh, yes. I am gumptionless in comparison with Anne. Oh, I guess, did you want to tell people what book we're talking about? Or did you just want to talk about my name for 45 minutes? I mean, I'm I'm easy. But, uh, yeah, (laughs) listeners, we are talking about defining Brenda text. (laughs) Anne of Green Gables today, as well as a little chat about the miniseries, the Canadian miniseries from 1985 that stars Megan Follows, as well as Anne with an E. I think, Brenna, you watched part of the first season and the opening episode of season two. Yes. And I have watched the entirety of the first season and most of that first episode of season two and then it was just a little too much Anne for me and I needed to take a breather. (laughs) That's a lot of Anne. I also watched the first half of the 1985 miniseries and that's not it for adaptations though, Joe. Like there's so (laughs) many. And so I think when we switch over to talk about adaptations, we should probably talk about why. Like this might be the most adapted text we've talked about. No, I think it's easily the most adapted Canadian text. But I think if we look at the number for Little Women, I think Little Women, okay, fair point. Probably going to take the cake. Fair point. But just as an overview, you know, there's like there's a a silent film about Mm -hmm. Anne of Green Gables, like from 1919, all the way up to like there's an anime series. So Mm -hmm. we definitely need to talk about why it is that people love this story so much and love adapting it. And it's not a mini-sode, it's a regular-sode, so we're not going to talk about anything else, we're just going to talk about the book. Yeah, because we've got a mini-sode coming at you next week, so in case people have forgotten, we are alternating between a full-length episode that talks about a book and an adaptation, and then 
the other week will be a mini-sode that tackles a subject that listeners have been providing. So we've gotten quite a few good ideas. And then, of course, we're also doing forecast episodes to help guide your reading so that you can set your library holds list. All of that, yes. And that means that I have a full week until Joe teases me for not doing any of the things I promised to do over the break. So let's jump into the book. Yes. (laughs) All right. So... Brenna, would you like to tell folks what Anne of Green Gables is all about? I would, I would. And there's a very real chance I'm going to get granular here, Joe, so feel free to jump in and correct me. But Anne of Green Gables, a novel from 1908, so we're just, wow, we're way past its 110th anniversary now. I was going to say we're just past its 110th anniversary, but no, the years keep floating on, Joe. Mm Mm-hmm. By Lucy Maud Montgomery, and she published under the initialism L.M. Montgomery in her life, but she's sort of widely known as Lucy Ma Montgomery. It was a very popular book in its time, Mm -hmm. and it has continued to be a massively popular book. One of the best-selling books worldwide of any genre from any nationality. It's been translated into at least 36 languages. There are eight sequels to this book. (laughs) One was recently uncovered in the last decade, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the little overview of the plot, but I also want to talk a little bit about Lucy Ma Montgomery because much like when we talked briefly about Pride and Prejudice in the Emma episode, there's some wish fulfillment and some autobiography going on in this book that I think is really important. And I think it's actually really important to the way it gets adapted in the 2017 series. So Mm, okay. all this to say, Anne Shirley is our protagonist. She's an orphan. She's living at an orphanage in Nova Scotia uh, at the time of the beginning of the text. Um, And she gets sent to live with Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert. Marilla and Matthew are siblings. They are tending the family farm. They live very quiet, reserved lives. Uh, And they're older. They're in their 60s, for sure, uh, when the book opens. They don't want Anne. They didn't ask for Anne. Anne was supposed (laughs) to be a boy to come and help out at the farm because Matthew is getting older and it's harder for him to do all the tasks that need doing. Um, And he started to have a little bit of trouble with his heart even from the very beginning of the text. And so they're looking for basically a a live-in hired boy. That's why they go to the orphanage, which is sort of wild to think about that's how adoption worked. It was like... You need a child laborer to (laughs) help you out. Why not a child who has no parents? Yeah, It's like wild. And so when we meet Anne at the beginning of the text, uh, she doesn't know any of this. She just knows that she is on her way to what she thinks is going to be a home and a family, something she has not experienced in her in her conscious life. <laughs> when she That's gets... a very specific way of putting it, and I appreciate that. Because <laughs> Anne is a bit of a daydreamer. She it is gets a her bit into of a some trouble. It does. And she imagines herself into all sorts of different places. And uh, she uses her imagination and relies on her imagination as a way to survive a lot of difficult situations. Yes. So when we hear about Anne's past over the first few chapters of the book, we know that she was taken in by a neighbor after her parents died. Uh, the neighbor treated her basically like a hired servant in the house. She went to like a series of homes where she, again, was a laborer, sometimes in very difficult situations. There's a point early in the text when Marilla asks if these people were good to her. And she responds by saying she believes they meant to be good to her. Yeah. She believes they intended to be good to her. And that's really Anne's outlook on life, is that her way of getting through what is ultimately a deeply traumatic past mm-hmm. is her imagination, her hopefulness, and her general sense that people mean to do well even when they fail to do well. Yeah. 
And it's one of those things that I think it's a reason why people gravitate to this book is that there's a way to look at trauma and difficulty and even just minor obstacles that accompanies mm-hmm. in everyday life and and provides that sunny outlook to which we should all aspire or even take note of like you don't have to wallow in it you can use your imagination and think of basically think of the upside exactly and i think montgomery is really interested in showing that there is an after for a traumatic experience yes yeah and that you can you can survive quite difficult circumstances. And Montgomery herself lived through quite difficult circumstances. And I think that in many ways, that's what Anne does. Like, that's Anne's purpose. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they don't want her, and yet they keep her. Uh, it's a combination of the fact that Matthew is absolutely bewitched by this little girl who actually talks to him. So Matthew is so reserved and shy and quiet that most of the small children of Avonlea, where they live, are afraid of him mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Anne is not afraid of him. She bonds with him immediately. And then Marilla has a sense of duty and um, responsibility. And when she finds out which house Anne will be sent to next with a woman who, I think Matthew says he wouldn't give a dog he liked to the woman who would be taking Anne if they don't keep her, they decide to keep her. Mm -hmm. And really the story is the story of Anne's coming of age, her blossoming from an 11-year-old orphan into this very poised and accomplished 16-year-old young woman. Yeah, who goes to Queens? <laughs> yeah, it's a different Queens. I know, but it's still, it's a very <laughs> unusual thing to think of a 16-year-old getting a one-year teaching certificate so that she can go off and begin her adult life. Times were different at the Times turn of the 20th century. Well, it's funny, right? Because I remember reading, I've read this book and the whole series so many times. And I remember reading it as a kid. And there's a, there's an ongoing plot point in the first half of the first book where Anne's teacher is in love with one of the students yes and I was always super grossed out by that I was like oh ew, the teacher's so gross in this book and then I think about it I mean it's still it's a power dynamic and it's wrong totally but he's like 18 and she's like 16 right right the context matters the context matters still icky by the way it's still super icky by the way (laughs) it's icky that he just doesn't teach the other students because he's in love with the anyway all of it's icky but it's not icky because of age it's icky because of a million other factors Mm -hmm. and so over the course of the novel we uh get to see Anne's joys and triumphs uh she's always getting herself into scrapes and finding her way back out of them and learning to trust that the people around her love her and will keep her and also that it's this sort of sense in the novel as a whole that that comfort that safety that family is what allows her to ultimately succeed so yeah joe's right she finishes school she goes and earns a teaching certificate in a single year which is an academic accomplishment unto itself and she wins a scholarship to go to university to earn a ba but then but then uh As is teased all through the novel, Marilla has these headaches and these periods of difficulty with her vision, and Matthew has heart problems. And at the end of the book, uh, I said to Joe, Matthew died again because every time. Seems to die every time. Every time I read this book, I'm like, this time he's going to be fine. And then I get to the scene and I'm like, oh, no. Matthew passes away and Marilla is given bad news about the prognosis for her eyesight. And so Anne makes a decision not to go away to college for four years, but instead to stay in Avonlea and to teach in the school in Avonlea and to pursue her coursework by distance. But also to pursue also- that haughty Gilbert life. <laughs> 
Oliver Blythe. So one time rival uh, by the end of the book now, quote unquote, good friend. Gilbert Blythe had gotten the school in Avonlea. Uh, he was going to be the teacher there and he gives it up so that Anne can stay closer to Marilla and help look after her. And so, I mean, it really is probably the nicest, sweetest, like, wrap-up ending of all of the ones we've looked at so far, perhaps. It's quite gentle um, it's and very not gentle, overbearing. It's very tidy. Mm -hmm. I think what I like the most about the ending of this book is that it feels like fantasy and wish fulfillment. Like, it's everything mm -hmm. that you could want for Anne, minus the fact that she has lost her surrogate father figure. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's also quite a natural ending. It doesn't yes. feel forced or fake for the pleasure of readers. It feels like this is just what would or could happen to this person. So the rest of the series of books will follow Anne into adulthood, uh, into marriage. We see her spend time as a school teacher. Uh, we see her in motherhood all the way through to her late middle age, getting on towards her senior years. And so... We have this very gentle start to the series because you don't have to, like, we don't have to have a quick, like, and then Anne and Gilbert got married, and then she did go to university after all, and then, like, in the one volume, mm -hmm. right? Because although the pace of the novel picks up a lot towards the end of the book, yes. it's like, oh, wow, okay, two years just passed in one chapter. Oh, okay. But the the relationships don't have to sort of find a conclusion necessarily because there are so many, there's so much left to the story. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this idea that the writing picks up and time seems to pass by a lot more quickly in the second half of the book. And mm -hmm. I was wondering, is this a, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give credit to Lucy Maud Montgomery, but I'll still put it out there. Is this her attempt to mirror the cognitive process of Anne where she's still caught in mm. daydreams and everything is just a little bit more lackadaisical when she's younger mm -hmm. and then when she becomes more prim and proper as an adult, the time just seems to pass a lot more quickly? I think so because there's a um, right around the time that the pacing of the book picks up there's a moment where Anne and Marilla are quietly together in the kitchen and Marilla says you don't talk nearly as much as you used to and Anne says it's funny I don't want to talk all the time anymore I like to keep things to myself a little bit more right and that's part of her that's part of her maturing and her becoming an adult mm -hmm. and that conversation happens just around the time that the pace of the book picks up yeah quite quickly I'll confess that broke my heart a little bit. I, I was very much Marilla in that moment where yeah. I realized, oh, this is where that girl who I think as an adult we so value, even when she's yeah. so frustrating and she just won't be quiet and she just talks nonstop and she has all these yeah. flights of fancy. That moment is so heartbreaking because you realize, oh, she's really not a little girl anymore. Like she, she oh. has lost the kind of innocence that made her so valuable. Your Anne girl grew up, Joe. I know! <laughs> uh, which is funny because there's whole sections in the first part where she's just relaying these endless stories. And yep. as a reader, you're thinking, okay, Anne, just... <laughs> I mean, Marilla just asked you a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the book is like... Uh, in the early part of the book is when Miss Stacy comes to the school and Anne is recounting to Marilla her first day. So Anne doesn't go to school when Miss Stacy arrives because she has a broken ankle. So it's about a month after that she finally gets to meet her and she has all this pent up excitement about meeting Miss Stacy. And uh, she does this like huge info dump on Marilla when she gets home from school about everything that happened that day. And she's like, and Miss Stacy says, I ask the best questions. And Marilla's like, yeah, I, uh, I don't, I, I believe that. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're lying. And I'm like, yes. 
<laughs> no one would doubt it. I have really aged into a fondness for Marilla's character. As a girl reading this book, I always felt Marilla was frightfully... Oh, she's so stern. stern. And just unloving. Yeah. You're thinking, Marilla, why won't you bend a little bit for this poor girl? But it's funny because as you read it as an adult, you realize that Montgomery is giving you all these hints that Marilla is softening, right? Like mm -hmm. we have all these moments where it's like she's she feels her mouth twitching and you're like, oh, she's totally trying not to laugh at Anne being ridiculous when she's supposed to be punishing her, right? Mm -hmm. So I have grown into quite a fondness for Marilla. I particularly, I know we're not talking about it yet, but the Marilla in the newest adaptation is pretty freaking fantastic. Oh, the Marillas in all of the adaptations They're all I think are just yeah. amazing. It's, it's true. It must be just be the best part to get to play <laughs> as an actress it's true there's so much there and that reserve with which marilla slowly becomes able to confess her love for anne is i think one of the most tender things we don't get a lot of non-traditional relationships in ya right we, we talked about this before we we read a lot of love stories and we read a lot of parents just don't understand mm -hmm. but this kind of i don't know not quite mother and yet deeply felt maternal care and yet so Victorian and repressed and unable to accept it. Yes. All of those things wrapped up in Marilla. She's just so rich and so fascinating. And perhaps it's a little bit silly of me and I don't know that this will resonate with our international listeners, but she also <laughs> feels so quintessentially Canadian. Yes, she does, doesn't she? <laughs> this kind of... Um, not an identity crisis, but she positions herself almost as a woman of the Commonwealth, right? Where yes. she she has a stateliness that we associate with the monarchy, but then she's also secretly delighted when Anne yeah. dresses down <laughs> Rachel Lind because yeah. Rachel Lind is ridiculous. And she yep. deserves the comments that Anne makes about her, even though it is impolite to say so. <laughs> That's exactly it. There's something about Marilla where she's like, She's got that British reserve, stiff upper lip, yes. like don't have emotions, don't have reactions, you know, taking up space in public is improper. Yeah. And then at the same time, she's this incredibly practical, hardworking, strong farm woman, mm -hmm. right? Like she's both those things at once. And what Anne gives her is this capacity for joy that has been missing for her life, from her life for so long. Yeah. It's a bit of an unusual message as someone who will not have children of my own to look at one of the mm. book's messages potentially being mm. that you need to have a child in your life to really embrace like everything that it has to offer. Mm. So that That's was a true. bit of a strange situation to embark upon as an adult reading this book. Like I haven't read this book in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting and also confronting in that fashion. Because as a person who won't have kids, you're frequently told that you're missing out on life's mm. greatest pleasure. You know, the capacity to care for a child, to help them mature, to see them grow up and blossom into someone like who Anne becomes. So I don't know. That was a bit of a, a weird kind of pin as I read. Oh, no, I think that's really interesting and it's fair. The flip side of it is that it's not, I mean, I think the flip side of it from a, maybe from a feminist critique perspective is the fact that it's not a traditional, like Marilla is not a mother, no. right? And like we're told over and over again that Marilla is not a mother. Every time 
Anne makes a mistake, it's like, well, that's what comes of being raised by an old maid, yeah. right? And like, Ugh, how could how could this old <laughs> how could this old woman know any better? She ain't got no kids. And Rachel Lind always says to her, like, you don't know what you're doing. You're not a real mother. Like, why didn't you come ask constant... me? I raised seven. Yeah, who we never hear from any of them. No, so, like, are any of them even like do any of them talk to you? And even... well, I think that's a certain amount of condemnation, right? Like, you yeah. can be a mother and not be a good mother because there's a lot of bad mothers in this <laughs> oh book. Oh my god. Oh my god. I did not remember how much I dislike Miss Barry. Oh, Mrs. Barry. She's the worst. <laughs> you aren't allowed near my kid unless you save my other kid's life. Oh, yes. So <laughs> terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. There are a lot of terrible mothers in the text and then there's this sort of quiet striving attempt that Marilla is making where everything she does is second guessed and everything she does is based on a sort of a foggy memory of how she was raised. Mm -hmm. I think there's something really interesting going on in the book about motherhood because Anne is so desperate to have kin, right? Like she wants very badly to be allowed to call Marilla Aunt Marilla. And Marilla's like, I'm not your aunt. You can't call me that. I'm not your aunt. Yeah. No, you can call me Marilla. It would be weird if you called me. It would be weird to have somebody living in the house calling me Miss Cuthbert all the time, but I'm not your aunt. And in many ways, I think the book is somewhat lovingly describing our capacity to build our own families. Yes. Outside of the confines of kin. Because most of the, like, you're right. There are bad mothers. There are also a lot of just bad kinship relationships in this book, mm -hmm. right? Like, would you want to be Mrs. Blewett's kid? No. I'd absolutely rather be a hired girl on Marilla's farm than be Mrs. Blewett's kid if I had to pick. <laughs> there is something to be said. That was kind of the, the thing that accompanied my sense of like, oh, well, you're a failure because you're never going to <laughs> Particularly for queer people, there's mm. a lot of talk about how we are given the opportunity to make the family that we don't always feel that we have. And that's never mm. more true than the people who have really bad parental relationships as a result of their coming out. So sure. in, in this case, you know, I look at Anne and I see the way that she susses out the kinds of people that she knows will give her depth of character and who will challenge her. They will act as puzzle pieces to build her into a better person. And she covets those people and turns them mm -hmm. into a kind of family that she wants to be surrounded by, which is why she's mm -hmm. so close with Diana, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's funny, when you first read the book, you think, oh, there's just another girl who happens to be the same age as her nearby. That doesn't mean that they're <laughs> going to become bosom friends. But Anne guides it in such a way. And I was going to say she wills that friendship into existence, right? Diana's like, I don't really have an imagination. And Anne's like, that's cool. I have enough for both of us. Let's go tell stories. And also, let's start our writing club. <laughs> <laughs> But like, I don't know, there's something so satisfying in the way that Anne just will not be deterred mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. seeking out the people like if she wants a relationship to succeed, nothing can get in her way. And vice versa. And vice versa. Right? Like yeah. with Gilbert, like her strength of will around human relationships. But I mean, sorry, to echo what you're saying, like think about how she builds these deep and abiding friendships with an echo and a mm -hmm. reflection in glass, right? Like her need to build a family from something is profound. Yes. And there are lots of really interesting queer readings of the text, like this idea of Matthew and Marilla as this sort of like, they're not, they're brother and sister. 
which I always forget. And even as I was watching it with an E, Brian was like, they're an odd couple. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Brenna already got mad at me for this. <laughs> but I think it's because we as a society yeah. are so attuned to reading an older man and woman. Like, why else would they be living together if yeah. they're not? I've read some interesting, like, Tumblr critiques, but, like, I love Tumblr posts for this kind of stuff, right? Because it's perspectives that you wouldn't think of. And I've heard sure. some really interesting ace readings of Matthew and the way in which Marilla has sort of, I don't know, ally is a weird word to use in this sense, but, like, Marilla's rela- responsibility to Matthew and her desire to sort of care for him in the way in which he is best cared for. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, like, Marilla's life has been a life of sacrifice, right? Like, she yes. she's maintained the farm. She cared for her mother in her dying days. She cared for her father in his dying days. She stayed on the farm. She gave up a romantic relationship, we find out, in the very final pages of the text. Mm-hmm. And yet she has quite a lot of contentment in the life that she has chosen for herself, right? Like, she is not self-pitying and she is not like, oh, I wish, I wonder. Even when she's telling Anne that story about John Blythe, it's not an I wish, I wonder. It's an, oh, this is another component of the life that I've chosen for myself. Yeah, it's like a door that shut on her life's journey and it's there, but it's not something that she goes back and says, you know, oh my God, the missed opportunities, which we'll talk about when we get to Anne with a knee. Yeah, (laughs) well, and that's the thing. Like, I think... There's such strength in Marilla's choice to be a very different kind of woman than any other woman in Avonlea. And on the one hand, we see her as painfully conforming when it comes to the way she wants Anne to behave in public and the way she fears for her reputation in the town and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But what an interesting way to choose to live one's life. So Lucy Ma Montgomery... I was going to say, I feel like this is a good transition point to talk a little bit about where she's seeing herself in this text. So Lucy Ma Montgomery was not traditionally an orphan, but her mother died when she was 21 months old of tuberculosis, and her father just couldn't cope. I mean, and single dads were basically not a thing in the Victorian period, right? Right. And so he gave Lucy to her grandparents, her, her mother's parents, and he left Like, he took off, he relocated to what was then the Northwest Territories. Oh, wow. Probably now Saskatchewan, but, like, he he left, left. Mm Mm-hmm. And so she was raised by the McNeils, her grandparents in Cavendish. And she was basically alone, like, constantly. There was family nearby, but her grandparents didn't really seem to get along with any of them. So she didn't have cousins she didn't have playmates and her parents lived fairly her grandparents lived fairly rurally so there was just no one around and that loneliness of Anne and that need to create an imaginary world for herself is that's Lucy Ma Montgomery's childhood in fact right Montgomery so all of her journals have been published interestingly Montgomery knew that uh she was becoming quite something in terms of like a literary sensation and she actually recopied all of her journals for publication oh savvy yeah so we know that the version of her at least to a certain extent the version of her at least in those early journals is the version she wanted presented to the world Hmm. although the drafts have been found and i don't know there doesn't seem to be a like there doesn't seem to be like she didn't seem to be making things up but she definitely had a sense of she was preserving a a version of herself for a public um but like she had an imaginary friend named katie maurice in her childhood so like those kind of components that appear in Anne's childhood are very much there 
Yeah, it's a direct adaptation of her real life. Yeah, exactly. And Anne's grandparents were stern and cold. They weren't cruel, but they didn't understand what it meant to raise a child. They're very much like early Marilla, <laughs> but they never warm up, basically. Mm -hmm. And she did do some education. She trained to be a teacher and she did actually spend a year out on the prairies living with her father and her new stepmother. And I think they had children and she did not like it. <laughs> she immediately returned <laughs> to Prince Edward Island um, as quickly as she could afterwards because she didn't get along with her stepmother and, and she didn't think that her father was happy in his new marriage and that brought her a lot of sadness. And so yeah. she did not have a lot of examples in her growing up of happy relationships of romantic relationships as joyful spaces and while she eventually did marry the ability to build a family that marilla and matthew and anne achieve i think that is actually something that she found very moving and attractive right so she did eventually go to i said she did teachers college she did eventually also go to university as anne eventually does in book four and of windy poplars or no actually anne of the island anne of the island is when she goes to university book three i was gonna say if you get this wrong i'm not going to be able to correct you <laughs> i know so i'm not going to go over her whole life but a lot of it mirrors what happened to anne but she had marriage proposals and love interests none of which really worked out she had a close friendship with a man named nate lockhart who she very much like joe march she did not feel romantically attached to him but he did to her and so they had this very close friendship that ended when he proposed nah. and then she uh, had a love interest named will pritchard but again he was much more invested in a relationship with her than she was with him it mirrors in one of the later books jane andrews's brother proposes to anne kind of seemingly out of the blue and anne doesn't want to marry Jane Andrews' brother and Jane Andrews ends their friendship over it because she doesn't understand why Anne thinks she's too good for her brother, which is very much what happened with Will Pritchard, unfortunately. And then she was proposed to by Edwin Simpson and she accepted that proposal. She writes in her journal that what she wanted was to feel protected. Doesn't seem to have really liked Edwin Simpson. In fact, at one point in her journal, she describes him as making her feel quite nauseous um, because he's so self-important and like self-serious. Anyway, that relationship ends when she has an affair. She has an affair with a man named Herman Leard, who most Montgomery scholars say was really the love of her life. And they were considered not a good match in terms right, of socioeconomic like class. Mm -hmm. Okay. She actually, she writes in her journal about quite an almost physical affair, which would have been really unheard oh my, of. Very scandalous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, <laughs> wildly <laughs> scandalous. And so after that, she breaks off the affair with Leard and he ends up dying of the flu. I think Will Pritchard died of the flu too. A bunch of them die of the flu. <laughs> It's a big deal. Yeah, back then. there was a lot of flu. And then she realizes that she doesn't want to marry Simpson either. And so she ends that engagement as well. And then she basically goes back to move back in with her grandmother and care for her. She stays there until her grandmother's death. And what's interesting about this period of Montgomery's life is that this is now 1911. So Anne of Green Gables is published in 1908. Her grandmother dies and she's actually like financially okay which is so rare so rare she's got money coming in but she doesn't feel like uh, she writes in her journal that she feels like with her grandmother gone she has no longer any excuse to stay single she feels this obligation to marry because it's what is expected of a woman 
even though she has the income to be on her own. And I've always oh, found that terribly sad. That is the wrong reason to get married. Yeah, it's not a great reason. It's not a great reason. So right after her death, Ewan McDonald proposes to her and she, they get married. And he's a Presbyterian minister. And she'd been a Presbyterian all her life. And Montgomery was also deeply spiritual. The way Anne speaks sort of irreverently, but reverently of faith and spirituality and like Anne's desire to like go out in the woods and pray to the gods is actually very akin to the way Montgomery felt about the power and passion of spirituality but she was Presbyterian and she marries Ewan Macdonald and he promptly moves her to Ontario where she lives for the rest of her life unhappily they have three sons together and Montgomery often spoke publicly about the fact that it was her duty as a woman to make their marriage work, which is a really interesting way to represent your love. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She wrote in her diary of him, I would not want him for a lover. This is after their marriage, but I hope I might find eventually a friend in him. And she unfortunately did not. He was given to wild mood swings. He would go long periods in deep, profound depressions where he would barely speak he had what they called at the time religious melancholia this idea of like a depression that manifests itself through like a spiritual hopelessness which is not great when you're a minister they were really really quite profoundly unhappy together Jeez. yeah it's really sad she once told a reporter that quote those women who god wishes to destroy he makes the wives of ministers yeah those are not happy times no not happy times not happy times at all So through all this period, she's writing the rest of Anne's story, right? And so as she is in this loveless marriage, she has three sons who she's devoted to, but she's also profoundly unhappy. She's writing these stories where Anne goes off to university and returns to Prince Edward Island and marries Gilbert and has many children and builds this beautiful home on Prince Edward Island and never leaves and like all of this stuff. And it's really awful. And her husband becomes incredibly jealous of her first because she makes more money than he does with her writing. And then second, because as a minister's wife, she is sort of beloved in these communities where they live. All this to say, Montgomery's life was really, really dark. And I think that that is something that contemporary readers tend to forget when they pick up Anne of Green Gables. We want this book to be sort of like happy wish fulfillment. And it is those things. But it's rooted in somewhere really, really dark. We know from the last book, The Blythes Are Quoted, that Montgomery was really profoundly unhappy and depressed. And we also know that The Blythes Are Quoted was this profoundly anti-war text for its time period, like really, really radical. Again, something that we tend to forget when we think of Anne of Green Gables as being this happy-go-lucky story. Mm -hmm. I mean, Montgomery we think probably ended her own life the same day that she turned in the final manuscript for Anne's story, The Blythes Are Quoted, to her publisher. And so I say all of this because when we look at the adaptation Anne with an E, there's been a lot of criticism that it's like, quote unquote, too Too dark. dark. And I think that that is a real misunderstanding of what is underlying all of what's going on in Anne of Green Gables that I do think Montgomery gives us a ton of hints to and a ton of suggestions about, Mm -hmm. even as it's a happy, beautiful story about a girl finding her family for herself. So now it's a good time to roll the trailer. (laughs) (laughs) One day, 
Princess Cordelia arrived at the most beautiful kingdom in the world. She knew not a soul and was worried no one would like her. We sent word to Mrs. Spencer to bring us a boy. You don't want me. There's no point in crying. There's been a mistake is all. Girls can do anything a boy can do and more. Who are you? My name is Anne Shirley Cuthbert, and please be sure to spell Anne with an E. Gilbert! Why are you walking with that orphan girl? I won't eat next to dirty trash. What good that she beat us? We might be some good to her. I make up stories all the time. I could never do that. I don't think imagination is my strong suit. Really? I don't know what I'd do without mine. You're ridiculous. Diana, shall we swear to be best friends forever and ever? I solemnly swear to be faithful to my friend for as long as the sun and moon shall endure. You have such a way with words. Okay, so yeah, as we mentioned at the top, we've got the 1985 miniseries that stars Megan Follows, as well as Jonathan Crombie as Gilbert Blythe, and... He's the ultimate Gilbert. He's the ultimate Gilbert, yeah. <laughs> I actually checked to see if he does anything else, and he apparently did a lot of voiceover work. Did, and then he died. And then he died at a very early age. Interestingly enough, he was apparently also a queer man. So if there were any young boys out there with inappropriate feelings for Gilbert Blythe <laughs> when they watched this. They're not so inappropriate. Not so inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. And then we've got, of course, Anne with an E, which is the CBC slash Netflix co-production, which ran for three seasons from 2017 to 2019. Yeah, this was considered a dark and gritty reimagining, which is fair. I mean, like the show's the show's creator, Moira Wally Beckett, she was working on Breaking Bad. She did a stars dark and gritty ballet TV show called Flesh and Bone, which is terrible and I don't recommend it. Uh, she's on record as saying that she she wanted to do a bit more of a realistic depiction of what life would be like for Anne that acknowledges the hardship that mm -hmm. is inherently grounding a lot of these more, you know, childish, happy-go-lucky adventures. Mm -hmm. So we've got Amy Beth McNulty as Anne, Geraldine James as Marilla, R.H. Thompson as Matthew. He's so good, too. Sorry, I just love R.H. Thompson all the time, and I love him in this. I think almost everybody in this is really exceptionally it, yeah. well cast. Yep. Delilah Bella as Diana, Lucas Jade Zuman as Gilbert, and Kareem Coslow as Rachel Lind. And the first season, it's an interesting departure as well as a faithful adaptation. So they rearrange mm -hmm. a lot of the events from the book so that they are a bit more complementary to how things are progressing. Like they want to do a lot of not quite metaphorical matching, but they do like to have events speak to each other. They also raise the stakes a lot, sometimes I think unnecessarily. Yes. Oh, particularly as the season goes on. Like, I only watched, as I said, the first double-length episode and then the second episode, and then I watched the first episode of season two, and the first episode of season two, oh, Gail's working in a, a coal disaster. mine, and I, <laughs> I mean, the whole plot of that episode is silly, and we can talk about some of those choices too, but Gail's working in a coal mine, and I was like, that's interesting. 
And so I started reading like synopses of the other episodes to try to figure out what was happening there. Yeah, like where did this decision come from? How yeah. did this all come about? And so one of these examples of like them making the stakes higher unnecessarily is this idea that Gilbert wants to train to be a doctor because he's going to be the first doctor Avonlea has ever had. Okay. And I'm like... Doesn't really make sense. Doesn't make any sense. Like we've had we've had doctors for a long time, even in There's rural literally Canada. Literally, lines where we say "send for the doctor" yeah. in earlier episodes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That doesn't. Well, I think the I think the idea is that those are doctors that are brought onto the island as opposed to a local son who makes well and is proven to be smart enough to become a doctor. Yeah, I guess I just don't understand. I don't understand why it's necessary. And I felt that way a lot when I watched the show. Like overall, I really. Oh, sorry. Do you want to talk about the eighty five version first? Uh, whichever way you want to do it, it doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, we could do this one and then talk about why you maybe feel the eighty five version is better or more faithful adaptation yeah just different i think with the 2017 version i love the casting i think everybody is perfect Mm -hmm. i really really like the way Anne's trauma is depicted yes the use of flashbacks Flashbacks. in particular is helpful so some of those scenes Mm -hmm. oh my god like not even the scenes I think the scene that upset me the most, right, I almost fast forwarded because I almost couldn't handle it, was the scene where the little girls have Anne in the basement and they have the dead mouse. Yeah. I was so sure they were going to like shove that in her mouth or something and I was just losing my mind. (laughs) I found all of that exceptionally well done because yes, Anne would carry trauma. She would Mm -hmm. carry tremendous, tremendous trauma. She's lived with an abusive alcoholic. She has seen people die. She would have trauma. And I really like the way they don't pretend otherwise and instead make it a central component of her character. Yeah, I found the most particularly upsetting one. So the Hammonds, which is the large family that she was kind of like a governess slash servant for, Mm -hmm. where this is a woman who had three sets of twins. Mm Mm-hmm. The depiction in the miniseries here is that Mr. Hammond died while giving her the strap and he had a heart attack and died. And then she had to just immediately, I don't think that she was pretending to care, but she had to go from being punished to suddenly trying to help this man who is dying and his wife. And you're just thinking, this is so much of a burden to put on a girl who at that point probably was maybe 10, maybe even younger. Yeah. Holy God, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It was a different time, right? Like children were expected to be helpful Mm -hmm. at a younger age. And in part, it's because we didn't recognize adolescence. And we'll talk about that as a defining characteristic of YA when we talk about it in the minisode next week. And I think it's one of the ways in which you see class functioning in the book is like someone like Diana Barry, who has had a privileged upbringing and has, as a result, had a childhood, right? Like childhood the opportunity to have a childhood is a mark of privilege yes and i realized that so profoundly this time reading and watching this text yeah it almost helps i think to see it visually depicted because there are times when i was reading the book where Anne talks about even the more specifically materialistic elements where she says she just wants a pretty dress to look like the other girls or she covets the idea of staying in someone's guest bedroom yeah or that someone would put out the good china when you come to tea right 
Yeah, but I think it's easy to misread that as another flight of fancy from Anne mm -hmm. or even just something where you say, oh, you know, she's she's just such a child about it. Like she wants to be pretty. That's such a thing little girls want. Mm -hmm. But when you see it visually depicted, it's harder to do that misread because it is a misread that's very obviously a class critique <laughs> by mm -hmm. Lucy Maud Montgomery. But then when you see it and you just see how drab Anne is outfitted and even when Marilla tries to give her nice things they're very practical and then you see her contrasted next to people like diana and you think oh she is poor yeah <laughs> yep like she poor <laughs> <laughs> yeah that first dress and they do such a good job of that in the 2017 version that first dress that she comes to green gables with that she wears oh it's a slip it's, a it's slip. not even a dress and the stockings aren't even stockings they're just like tall socks that she has to pull up oh my god yeah yeah it's really good I think the other big thing that I really appreciated about the miniseries is just the way that it's filmed. Mm -hmm. I recognize that this is a changing of the times. Like, you're not going to have the kind of staid, reserved direction and production design that you have in the 85 version. Mm -hmm. But my favorite thing about the 2017 version mm -hmm. is the careful attention given to lighting Anne's room when she stands <gasps> by the window. Yes. So it's kind of the synthesis of the way that she imagines things. She gets this view from her home, the place that she can actually say she has settled down into and just how she feels about the tree outside and how she feels about the nature, right? Because she's yes. on a farm. She's surrounded by nature. It's very important to her. And they always have this extra light that shines on her face whenever she stands by the window just to visually cue you this is a place that she feels warm and safe and happy in. And I think it's really inspired. Yes, I agree completely. It's interesting because there are so many things about the 2017 version that are letter perfect. Mm -hmm. As I said, love the focus on trauma as central to her identity. Love the casting. Love the setting. Love the mm -hmm. lighting. Love yeah. even the, for the most part, the musical cues. Some of them are a bit they're a little on OTT, the nose at times. But, um, <laughs> and I think if it had been a miniseries and not a continuing series, yes. I think I would love it. But it's the part where they shoehorn in all of these wacky adventures. Mm -hmm. I was, I was, poor Joe was busy yesterday. And without getting a single response from him, I was live texting him. <laughs> it was a stream of consciousness, folks. <laughs> Because the second episode of the series, they do this thing. So Anne, in the book, Anne is playing with a brooch and the brooch goes missing. And Marilla thinks that Anne took it. And Anne confesses because she wants to go to a picnic. And Marilla's like, well, you don't get to go to the picnic because you stole the thing. And Anne's like, well, that's Low unfair. Low stakes. Low stakes. <laughs> yeah. It's about Marilla learning to trust her. Yes. And then we have oh the person God. represented in the show. <laughs> and it literally becomes a, I can't have a thief in my house. Yeah. Send this girl back to the orphanage. Yep. Oh my God. Matthew, I've made a mistake. Chase down the train by horse. horse. <laughs> then Matthew, who, by the way, never leaves Avonlea like ever goes to Halifax he goes to Halifax and he searches Halifax for her they have a big like completely and utterly unbelievable come to Jesus conversation in the train station like yeah. the whole thing is so oh it's too so much. overdone and yeah. it's and you know ultimately What's frustrating is that the adaptation is so careful to cast and dress and set the characters with such attention and care. Mm -hmm. And then they do something like, Marilla would not have done that. Marilla is too 
part of Marilla's thing is duty above all else. She would not have let that girl go by herself all the way back to Halifax. She flew off the handle. Like, it's not at all how you would expect Marilla to react. She would have suffered through it and not trusted Anne. And there would have had to have been some moment where she would have been like, oh no, this girl is actually okay. Never mind. I misjudged her. Yes. This was completely bonkers. The whole thing was, and I'm the whole time, (laughs) I'm texting joe and i'm like well this is just stupid like i don't understand why this is happening no way would it play out like this yeah so i'm gonna highlight episode five as another very weak entry into this so the first season is comprised of seven episodes the first two are basically just an arriving just arriving it's very (laughs) drawn out (laughs) so episode five begins with Anne getting her period which is something that a lot of critics praised because it's an acknowledgement of Mm. how female menstruation is handled Mm -hmm. and it piggybacks onto the conversations that Anne has had with the other girls about what is going on with Mr. Phillips and his his queen's charge there. So it's a nice payoff to this idea that girls have a bit of a secret club and a language that the men and the adults don't always Mm -hmm. understand. I think Amy Beth McNulty does a good job, for the most part, of embodying Anne's both annoying and also charmingly, (laughs) you know, youthful indiscretions. She is, frankly, a little unbearable when she's pretending to have the mood swings that accompany menstruation. Oh, no. So it's uh, a little bit unbearable for the early part of the episode. But then that's the same episode where the raspberry cordial happens. Oh, no. So we're meant to infer that part of the reason the mistake happens and she gets Diana drunk is that she is having her period and she's not thinking clearly. This is also an episode where we find out that... I'm so uncomfortable! (laughs) This is also an episode where we find out that Matthew... This is where he buys her the dress, so it's not for Christmas here. It's just that he sees the way she stands out differently from the other girls. And he goes to town, he buys her a dress, and we find out that he actually had a love affair with this woman, Jeannie, who owns the dress shop. And she's still in love with him. And the only reason that they didn't get married is because Matthew and Marilla's brother died. What? What? Yeah, there's another sibling that's thrown into the mix that is never referenced again throughout the rest of this first season. But it's given as the reason that Matthew could not marry this other woman and he still pines for her and she still pines for him. And I was like, why is this in here? It's just unnecessary. (laughs) I mean, part of what's odd about this is there are nine books, right? There's a lot to draw from. You could take this visual signature and you could take this really interesting attention to trauma and you could apply it to all nine books if you wanted to make a series like how does this Mm -hmm. little girl grow up into womanhood like what does that look like when you come from a history of trauma I mean obviously you can't portray her into old age but like you've got five books up until she gets married like you've got a lot to work with and the idea that instead you just make up all this random stuff that doesn't fit with the characters and the way they experience the world 
oh, and then that actually is a great segue into talking about the most egregious decision that they do. And it's it's interesting because the first season has an 82% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And then when I was looking at it, the second season falls into 42%. And I couldn't figure out why. I could tell why from the season finale, from season premiere. That thing was weird. So the season finale is Matthew has his heart attack. They discover that he's taken out a loan from the bank okay. to keep the farm afloat because they've had a bad year with the crops and they discovered that the bank like it's going to take the loan back because they were investing in Matthew so even though Marilla is saying I can handle it I've got and we've got this French boy who's a creation for the show that works there as well the bank is like no we won't accept that so you know the whole episode is oh my god we're going to be poor and thinks of course that they're going to give her away to save money and blah 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 it all comes to a happy resolution where they renegotiated with the bank, it's going to be okay because they've taken on boarders who are going to help cover the rent and they're going to be doing work on the farm as part of their payment. Oh, that's why those guys are there. These are two men that have actually robbed the French kid when he and Anne went to town to try to sell things to pawnbrokers to help save the farm before they were able to renegotiate the loan. So they steal a bunch of his money And then they say, like, they're looking for a place where they can start to dig up gold. And they overhear Anne talking about Green Gables' financial challenges. Oh, my God. So that's the setup for season two, is that you see that these two men are the boarders that Marilla and Matthew have taken on to help save the farm. So they've introduced this, this grifting conspiracy thriller element and i can see like this is going to be drawn out into season two and i immediately like even just watching the first episode of season two i was like this is a terrible decision yep and it is it's going completely counter to what the entire purpose of the book is (sighs) but i think they did it because they were like this is a tv show that needs more drama we need to amp it up Whereas I think what they could have done, like based on the strength of that first 90 minute episode, which is phenomenal, Mm -hmm. it's phenomenal. What they could have done is said, okay, we're going to do what Montgomery does, which is have a mostly placid plot and context, but let's do a real psychological investigation of this girl and how she grows, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's weird because this is also the person who wrote Breaking Bad. So she has some understanding capacity for yeah how to create drama from seemingly mundane details yeah so i don't i guess i just i the instinct to hear is so weird to me because it has such promise and it was funny because i was watching that first 90 minute episode and i was like why did they ever cancel it this is amazing and then i watched literally the very next episode and i was like what (laughs) yeah what oh now i see (laughs) hard pass Well, it feels like it's doing such a disservice, not just to the source material, but all of the other successful components. You're thinking, oh, why are you letting your story let you down when you've got these talented performers, when you've got this rich source material? Like it just, it boggles the mind. And then to go back and compare it to the 1985 version, which rings a whole crap load of conflict and drama out of all of these mundane details (laughs) to great effects. Yes, it does. And part of that is the absolute perfect casting of Megan Follows and Jonathan Crombie. You root for them forever. I'm trying to articulate what I'm thinking here, which is that, 
Oh, do we want to roll the trailer first? Do you need to roll the trailer? We're getting a little boy from an orphanage in Nova Scotia, and he's coming in on the afternoon train. Oh, how do, Matthew? Is the afternoon train due soon? She's waiting for you on the platform. She? My name is Anne Shirley. Anne's felt with me. It's a girl. I can see that. Where's the boy? There weren't any. Just her. We have absolutely no use for a girl. You don't want me because I'm not a boy? She's no good for us. We might be of some good to her. This is a friend and neighbor of mine, Mrs. Rachel Lynn. She's terribly skinny and homely, Marilla. It's awful hard. Her hair's as red as carrots. How dare you! I swore that you were kind of a strange girl, Aunt Shirley. But I have a feeling we're gonna get along really well. That little girl ought to have all the kindness we can give her. We got no call to raise her as cheerless as we was. You promised we were gonna be friends. I hear you're giving the highwayman at the White Sands recital. I'm gonna try to get you an encore while you're up there, so make sure you have a second selection ready. Nobody's gonna encore me. Well, I would. Especially if I had the honor of escorting you to the concert. Um. Do you remember how, when we talked about Little Women, I yes. was so frustrated with the way that Joe and... Or, sorry, well, Winona Ryder and... Christian Bale. Yeah, they have so much chemistry, and it's like the director and the the writer expected you to just ignore all of that chemistry when she's like I've never been in love with you. Right. And so it it all rings false. It rings like she's making a decision that she shouldn't be making when really that's not what's happening at all like in the source material. Mm-hmm. What I like about the 1985 adaptation is that Anne and Gilbert have so much chemistry right from the beginning. They're like yes. this, they're just perfect frenemies. And it's appropriate. <laughs> like, you get the payoff for it in the end. That's why it's so great, right? So I think I think that has a lot to do with it. I also think Colleen Dewhurst is amazing as Marilla. I think the casting is really great. It feels much more like a traditional and safe way to approach the text. And it is. It is, yeah. I mean, even the, the ages of the young cast yeah. where yeah. Megan Follows was 17 when she made this, but yes. she's meant to be playing a... 12 year old at the beginning but yeah. you know they do that thing where they put her into pigtails and bind her chest within an yeah. inch of its life <laughs> and as she gets older you know she starts to wear her hair a little bit more down and then yeah. she pins it up as she becomes older and you're like oh yeah okay i can see the progression like yeah. she's never a believable 12 year old no. and diana in particular the actress who plays her, <laughs> looks like a 35 year old woman from the get-go <laughs> But it doesn't matter, right? No. Like, they're doing such a good, charming job. And even this version, it looks gorgeous. It's a little mm-hmm. bit more, yeah, I think safe and sort of stayed in terms of the way it's directed, mm-hmm. in terms of the way that it is edited. It does have a bit of that glossy veneer that made-for-television movies yes. tended to have in the 80s. I think that's part of the charm, right? Yeah. This, for many people, is the defining adaptation of this text. And it's almost like, this is going to sound like I'm completely off my rocker, but I feel like if Anne was adapting Anne's own story, it would look a lot like the 1985 version. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like it's glossy and it's charming and it's believable and it's like relationships and stuff, but it's very focused on the light and focused on sort of the happy. Mm Mm-hmm. I love it for what it is. I really appreciated the complexity of the psychological conversation in Anne with an E, which is why it's so disappointing when they do so much other stupid monkey business. Yep. Because I would have liked a little bit of that complexity to this version. However, 
if nothing else, this one, it feels almost too romantic. Yes. Whereas And with an E feels appropriately responsible in its depiction of trauma and difficult childhood, but then it leans too much into the sensationalism. Yes. Yes. I want both. (laughs) (laughs) Both. And the likelihood that we will see some variation of that in the future is strong because it's been adapted so many freaking times. It was adapted twice to TV series in 2017, for God's sake. Okay, so as we start to wrap up, I'm curious, Brenna, why do you think this book series, but particularly this first one, has so strongly captured people's imagination and can we briefly talk about its impact worldwide because i do feel like we should acknowledge the fact that Anne is huge in japan (laughs) Anne is huge in japan i read somewhere and i went looking for the source this morning but it was like at five o'clock this morning and i couldn't find it i read somewhere that Prince Edward Island is like the number one or two vacation wedding destination for Japanese people, Mm -hmm. like Japanese citizens, which I find fascinating. But also every time I've ever been to PEI, it's been everywhere you turn, a wedding happening. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So I think that Anne for a Victorian girl reader was a bit of a revelation. She is brash and outspoken and flawed and fallible and still beloved Mm -hmm. and i think that in a period when girls were just emerging out of the be seen and not heard period of girlhood um it was a big deal it was a big deal to see a character like Anne who could make mistakes and who could fly in the face of convention and be fun and funny and outlandish and still like sort of be the town's girl. You know what I mean? Right. There's a lot in Anne's character in and of herself, but there's also a lot in the way Avonlea responds to Anne and the way the town goes from like, who is this orphan girl who breaks everything she touches? She's going to put strychnine in the well to (laughs) that's our girl. And she is brilliant and fun. Like she goes from being this complete outsider to this all- I was going to say all-American girl, but that's not right. Canadian girl. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot in that. So within her context and her time period, that was really important. And I actually still felt that way when I read these books for the first time in, like, 1990. I think that femininity and girlhood is so confined and restrained still. And that even now... Seeing a character like Anne, who is so unabashedly herself, in spite of everything she experiences from such a young age, is powerful. Like, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why, like, every young girl reads this book and, like, no boys do, right? Like, it's it's a very much a book about girlhood. Yes. I think one of the things that I appreciate about it, particularly as a male reader, is that there's an acknowledgement early on and is always described as a little bit gangly. She's not the most mm-hmm. attractive girl. I can only imagine how much redheads must sympathize with the way she hates her hair, but also mm-hmm. how much it distinguishes her. But I like the fact that as the book progresses, she does soften into her femininity mm-hmm. and she, you know, she becomes an upstanding lady and all these other jazzy stuff. But at the end of the day, it's her intellect that is so valued, like her wit, her diction, the fact that she is able to then accrue all of these awards when she goes off to school. 
you know, that's part of the reason that she is the town's girl when she comes back, right? Yes. And everybody wants her to succeed and they're crushed when she has to stay at the farm. Yes. I just think that that's such an important, valuable message. Anne herself can be very vain and she can be very jealous and petty. But at the end of the day, it's her intellect combined with these other characteristics that make her such a defining character. Yes, absolutely. And so you take all of that and that this combination of very happy to be a girl, right? But also right from the beginning of the text, you have this this confining sense that her life could be different if she was a boy in this society, oh, right? Yes. That's 100%. huge too. So to speak to your, the Japanese question of why she's so popular, particularly in Japan, mm-hmm. in the immediate post-war sort of reconstruction of Japan, North Americans were very involved in the rewriting of school curriculum. And Anne of Green Gables, which in Japanese translates to, I think, red-headed Anne or red-haired Anne, something like that. Yeah. Um, It was put on the national school curriculum after the Second World War. So since then, literally every school child (laughs) in Japan Mm -hmm. has read Anne of Green Gables. My understanding, and this might be apocryphal, but my understanding is that the person who was in charge of post-war curriculum in Japan was Canadian. And that's how Anne ended up on the curriculum. Interesting. And everything that I have read suggests that all of these feelings about the role of womanhood and femininity and what it means to be a girl in a patriarchal society are just as resonant, perhaps more resonant to Japanese adolescent girls Mm -hmm. as it is here. And so, and then I think in the late 70s or maybe early 80s, it was adapted into its first anime. Yeah. So, which has happened several times since. So it's been a massive part of cultural conversation in Japan for the entire sort of back half of the 20th century into the 21st century. I mean, there's been a lot of conversations about how the Japanese are inherently fascinated by white culture, Mm -hmm. North America, how it's very unusual when white people go to Japan and they become almost like coveted symbols, like people Mm -hmm. will stop and take pictures with them and want to know more about them. And then if you add in that extra dimension of like, you would never see a redhead in Mm -hmm. that circumstance so i think it's also just it's such a unique character to them like it would be completely outside of the type of people that they would ever be interacting with there is a place in hokkaido that i would love to visit one day it is a theme park called canada world Mm -hmm. i can only imagine that it is amazing and there is a replica of green gables in canada world Like a life-size replica. Yeah! (laughs) It's not like a little museum and here's, you know, like a a fake tableau or something like that. It's a full-size building. And my understanding (laughs) is they basically built it, at least in part, so that people who can't afford to travel to Canada to get married can get married at Green Gables in Hokkaido. Yeah. I want to go to there. I feel like it should be part of my prescribed study as a Canadianist. You know, like I should have had to go as part of my PhD. Right. Shouldn't you have gotten a grant? (laughs) I feel like it. Dear Canadian government. (laughs) (laughs) I, Canada girl, would like to go to Canada world. (laughs) Oh, oh, that'll be my blog. Canada girl in Canada world. (laughs) Very fun. Yeah, I know, right? Um, (laughs) But I also think part of what makes her infinitely adaptable, I'm just looking at the ones listed on Wikipedia. So there have been, as near as I can figure, four films with one upcoming uh, one, two, three, four, five, six radio drama adaptations, mm-hmm. eight theater adaptations, right? 13 television movies. 
Wow. Six TV series and two web series. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. And it's interesting because I just think it's a book that invites so much self-identification, I guess, and investigation. I'm always fascinated by new and interesting and complex readings of Anne of Green Gables. It's one of the reasons why Anne with a Knee appealed to me so much is because it's willing to do something new. One of my favorite recent publications about Anne of Green Gables is an article by Helen Hoy, who is a professor of literature and women's studies, I think, at University of Guelph. She's also married to Thomas King, if you're a can-lit person. And she wrote this really fascinating article in 2012 that interpreted Anne through the lens of fetal alcohol syndrome. Wow. So one of the things that she's really interested in is literary representations of illness and disability. And she talks about how um, fetal alcohol syndrome is often misdiagnosed or differently diagnosed in girls because it presents very differently. And a lot of the stereotypical things we think about with fetal alcohol syndrome, maybe the, the facial characteristics, for example, are actually not universally true. And so Hoy writes this very interesting article about how alcohol and pregnancy was kind of everywhere in the Victorian period. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, think about the way um, Marilla keeps the current wine in the cupboard for medicine, right? Like, people used booze as, like, tonics. So it's a very compelling and interesting and thoughtful article about Anne's lack of impulse control, her difficulty in seeing consequences before she embarks on a situation, her flights of fancy, and her difficulty sometimes distinguishing her emotional reactions to fantasy versus reality. Right. Hoy makes this really compelling and compassionate argument. And one of the reasons she does it, she writes in the article that it's actually really a positive thing to think about the ways in which this beloved character could also be read as a character with a disability that as a society, we have a really hard time finding space for people with fetal alcohol syndrome, like in our society. Um, The article, if anybody's looking for it, is called Too Heedless and Impulsive, Rereading Anne of Green Gables Through a Clinical Approach. Whether you agree or not, whether you buy it or not, like that's not actually what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that the text supports so much, like the text supports that reading. And I think this is a roundabout way of making the argument that I think that's why this book has been so infinitely adaptable to so many different contexts, whether it's anime or super dark Netflix adaptation, right? Like, (laughs) I think you can go so many places with it because there is so much to offer. Yeah. And ultimately, I think that's why it's a book from 1908 that kids are still picking up brand new copies of every day. Yeah, I think it would be a mistake to misread this as a simple tale of mm-hmm. a young girl overcome adversity and finding love. That cheapens what Lucy Maud Montgomery has done. And I yeah. think it belittles the really careful, nuanced, interesting tidbits that are buried in there. They're not as obvious, maybe, as some of the more moralistic YA that we read from yeah. contemporary authors. You've got to actually do the digging here, folks. You do. And I think when you do, you're rewarded. And that's one of the reasons why so many people have found so many things to say about it. My personal favorite adaptation is the stage musical. Is that shocking news to you, Joe? It is not. (laughs) uh, It's very on brand for you. My family used to go to PEI. Like we used to drive there every summer. Uh, And my poor brother, because every year we would go to the musical again. And my brother was finally like, I'm not coming to the musical again. Like, I've, I've, no, no. (laughs) 
<laughs> so my mom and I would just go, but like I can still sing. I can sing the entire score of that musical from beginning to end without looking up the lyrics. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, folks, if we ever do a Patreon <laughs> and you want to throw a few dollars our way, that will be one of the episodes. Brenna will sing you the entire Anna Green Gables musical. Oh, I would never get the rights to it, Joe. It's, they're making a film of the musical. See, that would be a fun new yeah, iteration. I think so too. I'm excited. Although it's bit, it's one of those things that I think may be languishing in production hell, but right. it's um it's been promised anyway. Well, listeners, if you want that to happen, let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Brenna? Yeah. Can I inquire of you how you would classify Anne under YA bingo? Yes! Bingo! Not a good bingo. It's our first YA bingo of 2020. Bingo's back, baby. Yes, so for listeners who have not been paying attention on the Twitters, you will notice that we are using our Amalgamated Superboard for the new Amalgamated year. Amalgamated Superboard. Yeah, so we've taken, <laughs> we've taken categories from... Or we've taken squares, rather, from each of the two previous boards and put them into one... I was going to say massive, but it's actually the exact same size. It's literally the same size, yeah. Literally the same size. But (laughs) it's got uh, all of the ones that we felt were getting a lot of play in various other episodes. So, Brenna, tell me, Anna Green Gables, what have you got? Dead parents. (laughs) Right off the bat. (laughs) And abuse. Yeah. Particularly for this new iteration. Yeah, definitely. Allusions to classic lit. Anne is forever reciting things, especially Tennyson poetry. Mm-hmm. Definitely CanCon. It's yeah. like the CanConiest of CanCons. Right. And towards the end of the book, I would make a push for growing apart because as Anne starts to move away from Avonlea, it's definitely something that Diana has a lot of anxiety about. And they have that little conversation where, of course, Josie Pye has been telling Diana that Anne has a new best friend because Josie Pye is the, the worst. I hate her. <laughs> she's so bad. Oh, every time I read the book. And you know what's amazing? She's still bad in Anne of Avonlea. Like she, she stays bad. Yeah, I like that. I like that <laughs> not every character needs a redemption arc because some people are just awful. It would be totally unbelievable if every single person in Avonlea came around to liking Anne. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. she has to have some people in town who are still like, what? And I Absolutely. love that when they go away to university, Josie Pye's like walking around to people at the, or teacher's college. Josie Pye's walking around to people at the teacher's college being like, you see her over there? Orphan. Just so you know. <laughs> like, what a f- I can't even. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm okay. going to add perfect date because I feel like there are multiple examples of perfect dates. Like the one where Anne gets to go and perform on stage. <gasps> yes. Oh, in her beautiful dress that she thinks is so beautiful until she sees all the rich people dresses. Yeah. Oh, I was tempted Anne. to try to find a rich people problems issue, but it's really more coveting rich people's yeah. property. So It's more poor people problems. <laughs> yeah. The only other one that I really have is unlikely friendship because the way that she and Diana keep their friendship alive. Yes. Even when you think they might be growing apart. Yes. uh, It never wavers. And her friendship with Matthew, I think, is also an unlikely friendship that they bond so quickly and so closely. It's interesting. This episode is running longer than we had intended, possibly because I am obsessed with this book. But one of the things I really noticed when I was looking at the adaptation is the way the world is set. Like in the book... The first person we meet is actually Rachel Lind. Yeah. And we see the whole town as like her domain. 
And everything feels really circumscribed and small and contained. Mm -hmm. And then in the 85 version, we it's just Anne's life before and sort of not really... I don't think actually the 85 version is very good at contextualizing the space. No. But by 2017, it opens with that ridiculous horse chase with Matthew chasing the train down. Yeah, the horrible framing device. But one of the things that I think is really mm, shows what one of the purposes of Anne in 2017 is that that is total Prince Edward Island porn. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> please book your ticket to go and visit the island now. Yes. Where else were you going to see the red soil? The camera sort of sliding along the cliffs and the ocean and the, like, it's gorgeous, but it makes the world seem huge. Mm -hmm. And I just find that such an interesting contrast between the two. But it also shows, obviously, like, if the first person we meet in the first book is Rachel, it's almost like the most important thing in the book is the town. The first person that we meet in the 2017 version is Matthew. And it's that relationship between Matthew and Ian that's the most important thing in that adaptation. So anyway. All that to say, unlikely friendship and an adorable one. Very lovely. (laughs) I think at the end of the day, the thing I love the most is her relationship to Matthew and Marilla and the way that it changes. Yeah. It it really is. It's heartwarming. When Matthew's death makes it possible for Marilla to tell Anne that she loves her. (sighs) I was having a cry this morning when I finished up those last few chapters. All right. Well, no tears in our future. No. So, Brenna, next week we're not tackling a book. We are on to a mini-sode. And yes. folks, if you have not been giving a mini-sode a listen, because the numbers are not as good for the mini-sodes, I've oh, noticed. interesting. Very unfair of you. You should at least give them a try. We make a lot more jokes. We make They're a lot funnier. And Joe usually makes fun of me more in the mini-sodes. This is true. And it's for sure going to happen <laughs> in next week's mini-sode. So we are going oh. to tackle the definition of YA. But Brenna is also going to give us an update on how she <laughs> failed spectacularly over the holidays to read or watch anything. I didn't do anything. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, you should go back and listen to our binge-worthy episode where Brenna talked a big game about (laughs) what she was going to get done. (laughs) What's the matter with me? Why do I never change? Uh, Maybe it's because you wanted to enjoy your vacation. Uh, Maybe. But yeah, so that's next week. And then in two weeks, when we come back for our next full-length episode, folks, we are going international, Mm -hmm. but we're staying in the Commonwealth. So we are going to be looking for Alibrandi in Australia. So the title of the book and the film is Looking for Alibrandi, and it is from Australia. And this was recommended to us from a listener. Yes, I'm really excited, actually. I, I love it anytime we get out of North America. I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah, I'm very yeah. excited. So in two weeks, Looking for Alibrandi, and next week, Defining YA, and Brenna apologizing for not watching anything over the holidays. <laughs> And you know what? Like I have, we have what, five days until we record that episode. Mm -hmm. And if I was a different person, I'd be like, oh man, I'm really going to cram in these next five days. No. Nope. No. (laughs) You're busy. You got other things to do. Oh, yeah. I do eventually want to watch some of the things I committed to though. The downloads on my iPad actually expired from Netflix. Oh dear. Okay. What are you going to do? All right. (laughs) So folks, uh, until next time, I'll see you on the page. And in the meantime... On the mini page. Right. I will see you (laughs) on the screen. (laughs) Bye-bye.